0: Thick Descriptions disrupts traditional educational methods. And why do we do that? Because we want to help humans thrive where they are, building better communities. One way that we do that is the Elephant in the Room Unboxed, where we give our audience members the tools and the resources to have those uncomfortable conversations and do it in a humane and anthropological way. We're doing this in partnership with Respect Diversity, another organization that is committed to doing the work with us. Each episode, will have a different host and a different guest talking about uncomfortable conversations or uncomfortable topics and giving you the resources of how to navigate them. Let's get uncomfortable.
1: Hello and welcome to this edition of Elephant in the Room Unboxed podcast. I'm Dr. Noel Jacobs. I am the executive director of the Respect Diversity Foundation and a clinical child and health psychologist here in Oklahoma City. This program is about unpacking important and difficult topics from experts in the field and in the community around us. Our goal is to look at culture and history, anthropology, both ancient and modern life, so that we understand each other better and can make this world better for all. This morning, my guest is Dr. Dolores Subia Bigfoot, a child psychologist by training and a presidential professor who directs the Indian Country Child Trauma Center within the Center on Child Abuse and Neglect at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. In 2020, she was awarded the National Suicide Prevention Resource Center a $47 million award from SAMHSA to provide training and technical efforts throughout the country on suicide prevention. Since 1994, she has directed Project Making Medicine, a clinical training program to train mental health providers in the treatment of child maltreatment using culturally-based teaching. With the establishment of the Indian Country Child Trauma Center in 2004, Dr. Bigfoot was instrumental in the cultural adaptations of evidence-based child treatment. Under her guidance, four evidence-based treatments were enhanced for American Indian and Alaska Native families in Indian country, titled The Honoring Children Series. One of the four is Honoring Children, Mending the Circle, a cultural enhancement of trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy for use with American Indian and Alaska Native children and their families. Dr. Bigfoot has over 15 published articles and chapters including serving as the lead author of the recent publication, Adapting Evidence-Based Treatment for Use with American Indians and Native Alaskan Children and Youth. Dr. Bigfoot has served as principal investigator on 16 federally funded projects. She currently serves on the Federal Commission on Native Children, whose mission is to make recommendations to improve conditions affecting American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian children and their families. Dr. Bigfoot has over 30 years of experience and is knowledgeable about the concerns of implementation and adaptation of evidence-based practice being introduced in Indian country. Dr. Bigfoot is a member of the National TFCBT Trainer Network. She is also an enrolled member of the Caddo Nation of Oklahoma with affiliation to the Northern Cheyenne Tribe of Montana, where her children are enrolled members. Good morning, Dr. Bigfoot, and welcome to the elephant in the room, unboxed. We're honored to have you with us and to discuss your work and your understanding of American Indian youth and their diverse communities. Please give our listeners, after that introduction, um, a little bit of a concrete idea of the kind of work you do, both in and out of your role as a child psychologist.
2: My role as a child psychologist is minimal. (laughs) I... I am on faculty at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center but the majority of my time there has been developing and delivering a different kinds of training or technical assistance consultation to federally recognized tribes, tribal organizations state and federal agencies or organizations. And so a lot of it has been being the interpreter of what would be helpful for our underserved populations, particularly American Indian and Alaska Native, but also what might be reflected in other underserved cultures and um where inequity or lack of services impact the quality of life and giving opportunities to give voice to how do we bring more equity and inclusion into our communities and um, how that would... Be beneficial to children and, and youth and families.
1: You used a really important word a moment ago. You called yourself an interpreter. And most people think of that as a language based service to help people understand something the same way through language. But it sounds like you mean much more than language difference.
2: I think words have certain values for certain cultures and um, that. I- interpreter has a harsh history, as, as certainly with American Indians and Alaska Native populations or um, populations that have uh, different language expressions, different t- Native tongues, and that um, there have been individuals that have taken on the term of language interpreters, even though they're just called interpreters, But I think that we need to be able to have an understanding of systems. We need to have an understanding of policies, of um, laws, of um, assumptions. We need to have an understanding of biases and um, unconscious biases included. And just the nature of what it means to be in a disadvantaged uh, position because a lot of that might come from ignorance um, and some of it may be more deliberate and it could just be because of um, generational uh, biases and assumptions. And so how do we have conversations if our understandings are not from the same place? Mm. and? Um, you know even even names when we have um, generational names, so for example, my great grandmother's name English name was Pauline Washington, but her uh, Caddo name was Tinhue. and the reason why she was named Washington was because her great grandfather was given an english name of of washington he was given the name uh, george washington mm. uh, that was the name that was written down that was that was the name that became official that became the uh, how the written word has been established as official and as the rule of law and yet his um, caddo name bears much more understanding, and and her name bears more understanding in terms of them as spiritual beings, them as um, individuals within a, a, a cultural circle. Sure. their understanding within a certain kinds of of um, space and how they're connected to past generations, and then how they're connected to present generations. So I think that um, when we talk about interpreter, it's um, what is the role of helping people understand how various elements impact their quality of life Mm. and how that impacts the decisions that they make and um, the opportunities that they have and their hopes and dreams for Things to improve their own lives and as well as the lives of their children, how many generations do they does a the family think that they can have impact and be able to to tell the stories going forward? Sure. so, for example, in our family, and I think this is common for Amer- many American Indian families, um, generations of more than seven um we We consider um, that each generation is is important, and have connections to each generation mm-hmm. backwards and forwards. And so this understanding of multiple generation impact is is um, critical as we think about this space. But for the most part, for the majority of families in our uh, united states and and you know, English speaking communities, maybe knowing their parents and grandparents, occasionally mm-hmm. uh, great grandparents, um, but they may not necessarily have understandings beyond the second or third generation. Sure. How do we bring the um, the stories forward? And how do we tell those stories that come from these different generations um, and how do we learn from their stories? so, so I, I think my role in terms of that interpreter is to help create a bigger environment in order to have conversations.
1: That's a beautiful, long view of of what we need to keep in mind, especially considering how easy it is for us to really just focus on only the right now. That seems so. Common in current culture and time that we're really only thinking about just yesterday, today, and maybe tomorrow, but you're taking a seven generation view. And when you're speaking with people, that's part of your role in interpreting, is to make sure that that perspective is continued. You have personal, training specific, and practice knowledge of the shared American Indian experience and the impact of their history on their presence in the world today. Early in my time with you, because my friendship with you goes back several years, you taught me much about the 39 federally recognized American Indian tribes in Oklahoma and of the more than 200 tribes that existed before the arrival of Europeans. One of the most important things I learned about you, learned from you is about the diversity of cultural knowledge and ways of knowing both within and between tribes, and how humility, rather than bold assumption of knowledge, is crucial to developing understanding. Could you say a little bit about what you do within and between tribes and non-tribal entities related to this, your role in interpreting, and how other people need to take that perspective of humility, and why that understanding and approach is so important?
2: I would like to clarify something. So there's 39 federally recognized tribes in Oklahoma, and there are more than 200 representatives of other tribes that live outside Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. uh, within Oklahoma. For example, my children are Northern Cheyenne, and they live in Oklahoma, so they're part of the 200. Currently, there are over 575 federally recognized tribes across the United States, continental United States, and then uh, there are many um, state recognized tribes, plus tribal entities that are seeking federal recognition and um, there are um, other organizations or other um, linkages that have that generational connection. So uh, recognizing that they have, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 generations back mm-hmm. and their stories that connect them to land, connect them to sacred sites, connect them to, the earth and and their homelands and uh, but they're not part of federally recognized tribes and okay. the status of being federally recognized is that there is a recognition by the federal government that there is a formal government uh, and and a uh, political uh, government that a tribe is allows them to have a constitution and, and allows them to have uh, sovereignty mm-hmm. um, as, as a federally recognized tribe. And so the um, understanding that there are 575 tribes, I think, is, is very important. Okay. And um, there are membership, or there is eligibility as citizens to be part of those tribes. Uh, with particular criteria. And I forgot your question. <laughs> sure. And
1: and thank you for the clarification on uh, different travel status and the, the true number okay. um, of who's out there. So the question is about the importance of a perspective of humility in engaging with people with different backgrounds from our own when you're doing this work, but also in general.
2: I have been very fortunate. I have been extremely blessed, abundantly blessed to have invitations to participate with tribes from across the nation. The tribes in Alaska, California, New York, Maine, Florida, Mm -hmm. Arizona, uh, the Midwest, I have been very fortunate to be extended an invitation to enter into their current homelands and to enjoy their generosity, to be embraced by their generosity and their willingness to think that I have something worthwhile to share with them. Mm. And I think when we think of some of the traditions that we have within our communities, it's about gifts that are given Mm -hmm. and gifts that are taken. And I think of uh, an invitation as being a gift, that I received a gift of invitation to come in um, and, and be part of different tribal communities. And I think that that's, that invitation um is humbling Mm -hmm. that that someone would think it was or or the you know a tribal uh, entity would think it was um worthwhile Mm -hmm. for me to come and be in their presence and in their and share their space and to be welcome that they have uh, songs of welcome that they offer gifts, uh, that they provide time to set aside uh, to listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think when we think about uh, the invitation, that we, that I think of it as um, a gift, and I think that being offered a gift without... You know, r- real strings attached, or um, that th- that there's not a a a, de- a demand in some. Um, it, it, it's a gentle invitation. I think that for me is humbling. Mm-hmm. That's for me, you know, for and and to have um, someone say, "I heard you, you know, when you spoke, f- you know, for this group, and we want you to come and and um, you know, can you can you tell? our community, these things. And I think that, um, you know, I talked about my great-grandmother, Tinhu, who on paper is called Pauline Washington. Um, You know, I was fortunate, not not just me, but, you know, my siblings, my cousins, my um, aunties and uncles, you know, all of us, um, we were raised with uh, two or three or four generations in the home. And my great grandmother was born in the 1870s, and she lived to be almost a hundred. My wow. grandmother lived to be almost a hundred, and my mother lived to be a, a two months short of a hundred and one. Oh
3: wow!
2: So what we can say is that all of our all of our generations, all of the um, generations from those times, uh, we touch history. Mm-hmm. We we got to hold hands with history and. And, um, you know, as as they became blind or frail or uh, needed support in some way, we got to be that support for that history,
3: sure.
2: and um the the teachings and the understandings and the ideas and concepts um, that were shared in just living, um, and a lot of that is what I share when I go into communities. So it was a gift given to me. Mm that I can um, you know, create um, words for, and again, that t- interpreter, uh, to give to to and present to other community members, um, to present to invited community members. And so it was a gift given to me, mm-hmm. a gift I uh, present to them, and a gift that they can you know, take forward and present to, to others or to Share with others. So I think that that understanding of I'm not there simply because I have a unique thing to deliver. I'm there because I received a gift Mm. and that gift is being shared. And um, so the gift to me is that invitation, the gift that I give is what was given to me.
1: That's a beautiful way of seeing interaction with a group that is different from the group that you've lived your experience with. Mentioning your relatives who had two names, who had the traditional name given to them by members of their family and tribe, and the name that was assigned to them, that is a Western name that, in a sense, really represents that they have to live in two cultures. Um, they they don't. They don't have a choice in that sense in terms of where they will necessarily find themselves going because of these systems, the federal system and the tribal system, the, the, the nations around them that they live within. There's history in that, and every experience is going to be different person by person, but yet there's this, there's this perspective that we have to consider that although there is so much diversity across the landscape between american indian individuals and tribes there is a piece of this that that is shared history that is specifically the trauma that was visited broadly on these civilizations and societies here at the time that european forces and colonists pushed across the land that means with that come perceptions and misperceptions especially as hundreds of years has gone by, there are still issues that people deal with, but there are, there are ways that people think about that history and about the cultures that were harmed and changed in powerful ways um, since then. And I'm wondering, what is important for, for me, for listeners, to understand about the the perceptions and misperceptions that we might be carrying around um, for a history that we share somewhat, but we can feel so easily removed from at different times, especially non-Native individuals in the country. Um, what are things that we need to understand about that that maybe we don't?
2: Well, I think that's why we're having the conversation. And it is not a conversation that just started, right? it's been ongoing and it's not a conversation that will end when we stop our individual conversation right now today, sure and there's a lot of systems, there's a lot of uh, policies that impact um, a variety of people that uh, today we're still having repercussions from. So I was listening to NPR and there was a, there's a court case that um, a tribal individual from the northeast part of the state is saying that uh, the uh, state court prosecution of him was um, not valid because he's a tribal member on that, and the crime was committed on tribal land, mm-hmm. therefore it should go through uh, federal court, versus a crime that was committed on state land. Um, you know, and and the criteria for the uh, prosecution would be under state jurisdiction versus federal jurisdiction, which is what the thirty-nine tribes in Oklahoma are. Functioning under as as political governments mm-hmm. um, is, you know, federal jurisdiction and and tribal sovereignty. So a system that was set up uh, over a hundred years ago when the state became acquired state when Oklahoma acquired statehood mm-hmm. in 1907 is still that jurisdictional issue is still being challenged today. Uh, and it's impacting the lives of people currently and it was a current story in in this this morning on NPR sure so a, as for example when Oklahoma territory and indian territory which is what encompasses the current state of Oklahoma boundaries was first proposed it was for a sanctuary for american indian tribes that were being moved into oklahoma mm-hmm state boundaries, current state boundaries. At the time, there were primarily two tribes that were in Oklahoma permanently, even though there were tribes that migrated through Oklahoma. Sure. So the Caddo's, of which I am an enrolled member, had a very large territory, including Oklahoma, Texas, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana. I mean, we, we, we had a confederacy that was very large. Mm-hmm. And he, today, our... Caddo Nation of Oklahoma has a very small, um, fifteen or twenty acreage. Um, that's a tribal complex mm-hmm. in at the Binger Y in outside of Binger, Oklahoma. Uh, when we had many confederacies across several state boundaries, currently, and um, the Wichita tribe is another one that uh, was was here was here. Whereas now we have thirty-nine tribes that call Oklahoma home, and um, that they exercise their tribal sovereignty through their state through the I'm sorry through their I'm sorry I'm sorry not supposed to be state through through their um, tribal governments. Sure. And then many of those uh, tribal governments, for example, the Cheyenne Arapaho are a confederate tribe of um, two tribes with with a, a government whereas originally they were two separate um tribal entities mm-hmm. and in fact you know there's um northern arapaho and southern arapaho there's, so there's arapaho um in oklahoma as well as in wyoming um there's southern cheyenne and northern cheyenne uh northern cheyenne in montana um, there's seminole there's seminole tribes uh tribe in oklahoma as well as in florida so um, what we see is that the, um, the the policies over the last you know that occurred even over a hundred years ago is still impacting individuals today because many of them are not in their homeland. Mm-hmm. They don't have access to things that they had cultural teachings around, so their uh, or, or their or spiritual practices around. And, and, I, and I hope I don't get this incorrect, but uh, for example, the Fort Sill Apache in Oklahoma um, were Geronimo's band that went to Fort Marion, uh, St. Augustine, Florida, as prisoners of war, as captives. And then um, Geronimo was returned back to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, he still remained a prisoner of war as a, a captive, and his band of six hundred plus uh, came back to Oklahoma and didn't want to leave him, even though originally they were from um, Arizona, New Mexico area, mm-hmm. and so now we have a federally recognized tribe as Fort Sill Apache, which they had nothing to do with Oklahoma originally, sure, but now it's their homeland, and um, their have managed to increase considerably uh, managed to survive uh, managed to establish programs and they have some of the strongest programs around um, you know violence against American Indian women mm. um, you know uh, they they really have tried to highlight equity and um an understanding of the impact of violence in in the in in tribal communities. So they've done a lot of um, uh, building capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as we think about you know the uh, policies from hundred years ago or hundred and ten years ago or even you know hundred and thirty years ago, those same policies are impacting us today um, in various ways and. When we think about, uh, well, why are we uh, dealing with reservation boundaries? Mm-hmm. It's because of federal law that was established, and um, trying to tease out what that means for tribal sovereignty, as well as you know the state challenging, uh, and so there's a lot of court cases that go all the way to the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. that determine status. And so that has impact with our tribal communities today.
1: And it's still, you, a little bit ago, you used the word sovereignty. And that is a concept, I think, also that is poorly understood, especially by modern Americans who are not part of tribes and who don't understand the complex history that you just described, you know, beginning with um, invasion and territorial um, loss and human life loss, but these changes of where tribes live and how they live, who they interact with, what they're allowed to do on their land and not allowed to, to do on their land. Could you say a little bit about sovereignty from your understanding and why it is so important in the in the health and the future of a tribal community?
2: Well, there is a legal definition of sovereignty mm-hmm. and I am not um, a, a legal licensed expert. attorney. sure. <laughs> so I can give you my impression. I can be that interpreter and um, allow for conversations to be had about what the impact of sovereignty is. So I think there's a lot of language around food sovereignty, Mm -hmm. water sovereignty, land sovereignty. And I think the thing that we want to be able to say is that um, tribes who have sovereign rights have the power and authority to make decisions about their citizens, about the land that they possess about um their air quality, about their water um access, that they that they get to make decisions, that they um, have the the right and responsibility to take care of their citizens in the best way possible. and um, that the sovereignty has been challenged in different ways. Mm-hmm. And so this is where a lot of the Supreme Court uh, cases get ruled on about what, how much decision making, um, and and um, legislative and um, law enforcement that tribes have around their own dis- their own ability to govern. And so there's a lot of uh, background about how. Tribes govern, and so the governance is that sovereignty. The sovereignty allows for decision-making and and trying to bring bring more power and equity to tribal governments. And I think that there's also, um, we probably talk a lot about, um, in, you know, individually, about individual rights. And individual rights is about Individual sovereignty
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know we hear about what people can do in their own homes uh, you know they they, they um, you know should have the right of privacy and um you know or uh, like with their doctors or their lawyers, they should have the right of confidentiality and and um they should be able to you know tell their uh, religious leaders you know things and um so I, I think there's a lot of under there's a lot of conversations around what it might mean in terms of individual, in terms of political groups or Mm -hmm. or governance. And um, the um, recognition that tribes have sovereignty actually started back when the uh, colonization period started uh, after uh, 1491. And um, there were foreign governments that recognized the tribes as governments, mm-hmm. and so they made treaties with them and established their and and acknowledged their rights of of of, uh, of of a government. And so, as we said, you know, what how far back does does policy go that still impacts us today? So when the foreign governments not individual colonists but when foreign governments recognized tribes as as a government that they could make a agreement with or a treaty with then that established their sovereign status. Okay. And uh, it was through that that the federal government and um, through their federal policies established uh, that same federal status with with tribes and That's how we have federally recognized tribes. So you can't have a federally recognized tribe without having also tribal sovereignty. And earlier, you mentioned that um, I'm on the Commission for Native Children, which is a federal federal legislation that was a bipartisan um, law established to look at the federal, state, county and uh, tribal systems affecting the welfare of children and um it's the commission on native children for american indians and alaska natives um who are and and as tribal entities tribal political um entities have sovereign rights and um but the Commission on Native Children also includes Native Hawaiians. Mm-hmm. And as a entity, uh, Native Hawaiians do not have sovereign rights the same way as federally recognized tribes do. Oh. And uh, so we have territories, uh, Guam, American Samoan, Puerto Rico, uh, they do not have state sovereign rights okay. either. Um, and their indigenous populations do right. not have uh, sovereign rights as a, as entities or a political um, governments, and so sovereignty means the ability to govern oneself, to make rules and laws, and to um, enforce those, to have jurisdiction over those um, rules and laws, and the citizens of of that nation.
1: Okay, so that's an ongoing struggle.
2: That's an ongoing
1: struggle. You've spoken about the idea that there are active cases and there are, for example, fights over just water sovereignty on land that is already recognized as a tribal land. So it sounds like that is not something that's going to be fully affirmed and enforced if we continue to have to have these fights because there are federal infringements and other things that are impacting tribes' ability to be sovereign in that way?
2: Well, there's state infringement okay. on tribes. And like I said, I'm not an attorney. It's, sure. A lot of this is legal. Um, but there are state infringements of uh, federally recognized tribes in Oklahoma. Um, that, And it's about jurisdiction mm-hmm. and who has the right to govern. And um, so I think what we see is that the 39 tribes in Oklahoma are is is collectively uh, one of the largest employers of uh, and 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 contributes to the economy of Oklahoma in the billions of dollars. Um, I think the concept of being a good relative, um, you know, there's uniqueness to each one of the federally recognized tribes, uh, but there are also some uh, common features like being a good relative, sure. understanding, um, you know, extended families, um, recognize who we're spiritual beings. So, so, so there's some commonality, but the way and the specific uh, language or the specific um, teachings or the specific practice uh, can be unique to, to particular tribes. And um, so, the uh, concept of being a good relative within The tribes in Oklahoma, and you see this in the advertisements that they have on on TV, non-tribal community members saying the tribes have helped with building bridges, the tribes have helped with uh, schools. Schools,
1: roads, and infrastructure. Roads,
2: infrastructure. Even though it may not necessarily benefit their tribal member uh, directly, it benefits the community in which the tribal members are uh, live in Absolutely. or the or the um, com- counties that are in that area. Sure. So the um, understanding that that tribes have a right and a responsibility because of jurisdiction mm-hmm. to take care of their community members as well as their neighbors, and so tribes have been able to do this in, in different ways because. They bring so much to the economy. And that right and responsibility, it's not a burden. I think that when we see, the uh, when we practice the understanding of being that good relative, it is the desire to have that right and responsibility because it allows that decision making, that being able to govern ourselves. Right.
1: Well, and beyond that sovereignty, and I think some of what I've heard, even here in Oklahoma, speaks to this idea that there are there are things that are as important as sovereignty within tribal cultures, including reclamation. There was so much lost in forced removal. There was so much loss in the forced boarding schools. Um, and in a sense, the the... The removal of the tribe from the child being raised in this Western um, school against their will and separated from their family and from the generations um, around them, and yet there is so much beautiful work going on right now related to reclaiming and increasing language speakers within tribes and the the traditional tribal arts movements and other things. We talk in this series about space for community and sustainability of community. And these efforts seem so much related to the resilience of tribal citizens over time that belong to these different cultures and communities, but are, are actively seeking to preserve and enhance and bring back the flourishing of the cultural aspects that um, in many ways have been harmed or stolen. Could you say a little bit about the aspects of resilience and
2: reclamation that you see happening in tribes? Well, I think that tribes have always had resiliency. Mm -hmm. And tribes have always sought to reclaim what has been lost. And it has evolved into more comprehensive or spectacular ways of telling that story and i think that um resiliency is the you know individual and collective lifting up of one another mm-hmm. and there's always been creativity in our tribal communities i mean you you look back at uh, the pottery that was made mm-hmm. or the basketry or beadwork or the the dress the sewing i mean you know, um you know, the Caddo's used the material that was around them historically, uh, which was uh, willow bark. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who would have thought that you could make such, uh, you know, beautiful clothing out of willow bark? But, you know, it's it was a, a process. And again, you know, it was experimenting. Um, you know, this was science. Right. As well as creativity. And the desire to to recognize beauty even when things are sort of bare uh, necessities mm-hmm. so the clothing that's huts you know how do how do you keep warm in the winter time and still have a, a cool in oklahoma summers <laughs> Right, but to, to have that creativity to build you know high ceiling huts that you could open yeah. up and have the 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 Um, wind blow through and and, and have that circulation and still have, you know, warm homes and warm comforts during that winter, during the wintertime. All that creativity, I think it's being demonstrated in just different ways now when we think about art or um, cultural displays. Mm -hmm. The University of Oklahoma Native Student Pow Wow was in April, and they had, I don't know, twenty or thirty vendors, and each one of the vendors had just absolutely beautiful displays of of many different kind of things. Sure, they had you know the normal things in terms of T-shirts, but they also had ribbon skirts, and so we always always have had uh, skirts, and um, I can remember as a as a young girl, uh, we grew up very poor. We had a wooden stove. We'd, we had uh, kerosene lanterns. We didn't have electricity. Mm-hmm. And uh, ironing my grandmother's dresses. Uh, and this was back in the you know mid-50s and, and 60s with the old iron. And the skirt uh, represented her sense of of beauty because she liked color coordinated things. So mm-hmm. you could uh, look at her dresses and they'd be from uh, deep purple all the way to very pale pink. Oh wow. And that, 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 that was, that was the way her slips were because they had buoyancy, you know? And um, so now the ev- evolution of that, uh, those kind of skirts to ribbon skirts Sure. and um, just, you know, the, the, Of course, as a grandmother, all the um, infant and young children kind of clothing. Yes. But there was beadwork, there was paintings, there were posters. So the the abundance of all of this creativity, um, I think everything has a short story or some kind of story to be told. Mm -hmm. Whether it's um, the ribbon skirts or whether it's the t-shirts or whether it's the coffee cups with, you know, various logos on them, but their, their, their meaningfulness. Um, so as we think about the resiliency comes through because of the experiences. Sure. And um, I think by how the 39 tribes, you know, they're, they're all thriving financially at different levels and different cultural teachings and applications, mm-hmm. but they have established you know tribal sovereignty, tribal government um, they're providing services to their tribal members, but also um, their tribal members that are not part of their tribe and also to their community right so the I think as we um, see it, we, we see it displayed by all the opportunities to uplift one another. Mm. Everybody. Everybody.
1: It's such a beautiful way of seeing our shared humanity. And that's you know one of, the, one of the things that we always speak about in this space is the diversity of human experience and the important ways that we can see and celebrate but also protect and advocate for each other across our differences. In, our, in this last um, few moments that we have, are there any other things that you would want to leave us with as, as members of this land, um, tribal and non-tribal, indigenous or of European ancestry or African-American ancestry, Are there things that you feel are really important for us to carry with us into those spaces um, in the world around us, um, in our encounters?
2: You know, we have a bigger recognition of land Mm acknowledgement. This is a practice that has been more formally institutionalized through our relatives who are Aborigine from Australia, New Zealand. But in reality, land acknowledgement has always been part of our ceremonial uh, teachings within our tribal communities because each time we have established a home, there's always been a, a, an offering made. And that offering has been about acknowledging how we stand, uh, what space we occupied, that we want this uh, space to be safe. Uh, We want the safe, the space to offer protection. We want the space to be a place where uh, nourishment can occur, where there can be a a welcome, where there can be a sense of um, invitation. So maybe going back to the beginning where we talked about invitation, I had the gift of being invited to many different communities and there's always an offering. There's always a um, beginning blessing. There's always words of acknowledgement. Yeah. And so I think that as we think about land acknowledgement, it's not just saying who was here prior. It was. It's saying, um, how do we bring safety and um, invitation mm-hmm. and uh, do no harm? to those who who are within our circle, within our space, and that, as we expand our circle, how do we make certain that those that are in our circles experience safety and protection and acknowledgement, that there's awareness of that history? Uh, there's awareness of the future. there's a sensitivity to recognize the differences that exist and to sensitive to those that have needs Mm -hmm. huge needs and um how do we bring them safely into these circles so that they can thrive and um certainly they have uh, resiliency too because they wouldn't be here if they didn't have uh, but maybe they're not thriving in a way that allows for um full purpose of of who they are and um, how they can exist um, and how they can be relatives that we uh, want to have conversations with.
3: Mm.
1: That's so beautiful because it's not just acknowledging our history, but it is choosing to live into a better present and future for all of us.
2: Yeah. I, I think that we have different prophecies that talk about the future and, um, you know, how do we help bring action to those prophecies, mm-hmm. because the prophecies are about us, you know, about all of us, uh, collectively, jointly. How do we take that pathway of honor uh, moving forward rather than shame or fear or hostility or violence? yeah, how do we how do we step? into the circle in an honorable way with honor and respect and generosity and humility and graciousness and um, extend that invitation so that other people's, other individuals feel that same graciousness.
1: Absolutely. Wonderful conversation. I so appreciate your perspective and your time and your willingness to share this space and help us understand more. Thank you, Dr. Bigfoot, for being with us today.
2: And you're taking me to lunch, correct?
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Thanks again.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Thick Descriptions, Elephant in the Room, Unboxed. Want to learn more about us, what we're doing to disrupt traditional educational methods? Follow us on Facebook, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, thickdescriptions.org, 405-397-0584.